Hi folks, just so you know, this is going to be a long-ass episode, so if you're not prepared to sit in for at least an hour solid, um, go listen to our other episodes, probably. Okay, thanks. Also, spoil alert for anything related to the Hunger Games series. Forgot to mention that. Hey guys, welcome back to the No Context Convos podcast. I'm your host, Brianna. And I'm Dakota. Slay. That was better. It was way better. All right. The hype of this has kind of died down a bit, but let's talk Hunger Games and not the parody version that Taylor Swift was in. What was that called? Starving Games? Starving Games. Fucking terrible. It wasn't terrible. Uh, it was terrible in the way that literature was being mocked. That but would yes. be what a parody is. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. This came out a couple months ago and we saw it in theaters and I absolutely loved this movie. It was so good. And I haven't watched a movie that really made me think like this in a very long while. Did you kind of have the same experience? I don't know. I thought, like, you thought it was good, but not as crazy good as I thought it was. Probably not. The only thing I was really curious about or what I liked about it was getting the background to snow and trying to understand, I guess, at the end of the night when we watched the movie, uh, we were talking about how it might connect to Katniss and his story there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought that it was very well done. I read the book first. And I think that that was the best way it could have been done because I feel like I talked to somebody, I talked to a few people actually, who watched the movie first and then wanted to read the book after. And they were like, yeah, you just don't, you don't appreciate the movie as much that way because there's all of this backstory that's in the book that really isn't fleshed out in the movie. There are details that you have to get rid of when you're making a book into a movie. Like, there's just physically not enough time to explain everything. But also, there are scenes in books that just do not meld into movie format. So I feel like that and the fact that also, like, it's so hard to do a movie that's like an inner monologue, as it were to be, like, as you would say it, um, without it sounding really fucking weird. Mm -hmm. Like some random kid just reading from their diary you know yeah when we first watched it i was like oh my god we have to do a podcast episode about this because this movie is insane and i had so many thoughts and that was like a month ago (laughs) and so i kind of forgot a lot of the stuff so then i watched it again now that it is now available to rent and buy on digital at home and so we bought it and i watched it again Fell asleep halfway through because that's what happens. Then I went ahead and like I reread the cliff notes for the book again to remind myself what happened in the book. And then I like read all of the movie plot for the vets. So I just I prepared myself for once, which never happens. One of the the main things that I want to talk about forever is the fact that there's so much that changes because there's not an inner monologue. Because in the book, the inner monologue is like the core piece of you really understanding why Snow is the way he is. And the movie 
does not have that. And so you're kind of left up. It's kind of left up to the viewer to read between the lines. And a lot of viewers do not do that. And so I think that a lot of people missed the whole point of this story. Well, I wouldn't say the whole story. I do agree that missing the monologue is impactful to like understanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's just the fact that there are so many girls who are on TikTok who are just like, President Snow is like so amazing and he's so hot. And when he when he has the buzz cut, he's just uh. And then I'm just like, you're missing the point. This man is a psychopath. Like, I get it. He's hot when he's shirtless wearing dog tags and like jumping into the lake with the love of his life or whatever. And they're all happy. Yeah, that's really cute. And it it makes a romantic's heart beat a little bit. But there is this fact that, you know, he, he's a murderer. He sells people into prostitution and sentences children to a death that is not only horrific and like gruesome, but it's also made a spectacle of like in the later Hunger Games, like this band did like 65 Hunger Games. He's and old. That's besides the point. <laughs> yes, he is old. But he like participated in 65 Hunger Games. Participated or led? Participated less slash led because we don't know how many years he was working with Dr. Gall before he became head game maker and before he became like the president and all of that. Mm -hmm. We aren't sure the timeline, at least to what I know. If there are any crazy Hunger Game fanatics who know every little detail about it, please let me know because I also want to know every little detail. But that's a lot of children. That this man tortured and murdered for the sake of just torturing and murdering. It doesn't matter that he looks cute in a buzz cut. It doesn't matter that he had a tortured past. It doesn't matter that his father clearly didn't love him. That doesn't matter when this man makes it his life mission to just kill people who are completely innocent. That's my problem with it is like when people are romanticizing his story, you're supposed to sympathize with the character. You're supposed to be like, okay, yeah. He went through some tough shit. And this is how, like, he got to the point where he is now. But it's also important to remember that he goes to being this terrible person. And that doesn't mean that we need to idolize him. So that's my thing is, like, the inner monologue in the book really changes how you look at that. Because it's so clearly apparent that this man is so psychopathically. That's not a word. He's um, such a crazy person. And the way he views the world and the people around him is just absolutely absurd to me. Like there's one scene in the book when he like meets Sejanus's mother for the first time. He like goes to their house. This is after he like saves Sejanus in the arena, which he did for no other reason than self-preservation. And the thought like this was an actual thought in his head, like when he was going to get him. Oh, I bet they'll give me a bunch of money if I save their son. Bitch, what? So he goes in, saves him. Risking his life, I mean. Yeah, I mean, he goes in there, he saves his life, and then he gets, (laughs) it's so funny, because he's so absolutely, like, maddened by people. It's like, I remember reading it, and I was like, there's no way this guy's for real. It's right after they've gotten him, St. James, out of the arena, or Sejanus was heavily injured, which is also not talked about in the movie at all. Like when his leg gets hurt in the movie, it's kind of like a, oh no, he hurt his leg moment. Whereas in the book, it's like, no, he literally basically broke his leg off. And so like obviously was recovering for months and months after that, um, before he joined Corio in District 12 as peacekeepers or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he gets mad because he's like, it's been X number of days. 
since I saved their son. And they haven't contacted me or anything about a prize or thanking me. How dare they? And so then he makes up an excuse with like the school that he's going to give Sejanus like his homework assignment. And then he goes to his house, which he's never been to. And he knocks on the door and he's like met by Sejanus's mother. And she's like, oh my God, thank you so much for like saving our son. She And she's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, well, you know, I just, I hadn't heard anything. And so I just wanted to check and see how Sejanus was. And so then he, she offers, you know, she invites him in. She's like all nice because she's like fucking mama plinth and she's super nice. And she like makes him a breakfast or like a meal of some kind. She offers him the food. They sit down, they're chatting and they're having what seems to be like a normal conversation. And you're like, oh, this is so sweet. And then his inner monologue starts and it's like, God, this woman is so insufferable. Doesn't she know that her son's stupid? And I'm like, oh my God. So like, it's that kind of stuff that just was not in the movie that I'm just like, this really puts everything into perspective. And like in that moment, then he like orchestrates going to like hang out with Sejanus's dad and like try to get him basically to give him a prize. And I fucking love Sejanus's dad in this scene because he's like, oh, like asking him all these questions about his life and like talking to him. And then he's like, I just really appreciate what you did for my son. You're like a really good friend. And Corey is like, ah, here it is. Here's it coming. I'm going to get me some money. And then he's like, you better run along to school now. Just like a massive, like, I'm not giving you a cent. (laughs) It's so crazy how much that inner monologue like plays into how you see the characters. Yeah, none of that was in the movie. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, they're like, those entire scenes are just gone. Like, the whole story. Like, there's so much that happened with the plinths that's just not talked about in the movie. I think they easily, since it was his. I guess technically it's not his movie, but... I mean, it kind of is. Yeah, he's at least the main character. Anyhow, so with him being the main character, I think they could have put in some monologue. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting decision creatively to just completely nix the inner monologue. Because I do agree with you. They could have slipped something in. Like, they could have put some scenes where he was, like, writing in his journal or something. And you like glance down at like his words and you like got a glimpse into the fact that this man is crazy and like views other people as being just utterly inferior. That was the thing that I could not get past when I was reading the book is the fact that he just truly thought everybody was inferior to him. And Tigris, his cousin, even like talks about this in the book about how Corio, you have to remember like... Not everybody's out to get you. Not everybody is here to serve a purpose for us. And that line, like that kind of monologue from like Tigris, that kind of like worldview was something that she was trying to teach Corio. And we see it even in the movie, which I really loved, like the first scene with Tigris and Corio and their grandmam. That scene, perfection. They kept it basically word for word. They sped it up a little bit because they speed everything up in a movie, mm-hmm. but almost word for word. Like, I love that scene, like where Tigress is talking to him about how she made the shirt for his like special thing. Like that yeah. scene, perfection. Loved it. But you really see the fact that Tigress kind of sees herself as like 
a nurturing person specifically for Coriolanus because the grandmam which is not entirely shown in the movie either the grandmam is fucking crazy like she's literally like she's lost her mind like she has either dementia or Alzheimer's but she also is like very paranoid specifically of the rebels like you see one scene in the movie where grandmam's like you're just lucky that songbird didn't peck out your eyes right and tigress goes grandmam she's not a rebel she's just a girl and like the grandmam's like everybody's a rebel that was like a hint at what you got in the book which was like she was crazy she was terrified of everyone she hated everybody and a lot of that grandmam's influence and like thought about the other people in the capital and specifically mm-hmm. the people in the districts. Right. Like Snow's like absolute contempt for the people in the districts. Like, oh, they're just district. We're the capital. That line of thinking came from his father and his grandma. Well, his father, wasn't he the president? I don't think so. He was some... They were just rich. No. He they were just rich and influential. No, he wasn't. You're sure. I can look it up right now, but I don't think he was. I love that the first thing was, was Coriolanus Snow always evil? Was Coriolanus Snow ever in the Hunger Games? What does that mean? <laughs> um, yes. Coriolanus' father was a munitions tycoon who joined the military during the war. Okay, he became a first, he became a major general during the first rebellion. Yeah. So, and okay. then he dies and he gets killed by a rebel. So he was a military general. Yeah, he was just a military guy. But it's interesting because Corio looks up to his father a lot in the movie and in the book, which is weird because he was never around his father. But you see him always trying to be his father, specifically with the manipulative side of Snow. And that like also brings into the question that I have later on because I want to leave it for close to last. Because mm-hmm. I think it's a good question. But, you know, he just really tries to be his father. And Tigris knows this. Because Tigris literally says, you don't have to be like your father, Corio. She literally says it. Because she knows, she sees the manipulation that he does for people. She sees the way that he treats people. And she sees the way that he acts like people are only in this world to give him a better life. So, like, if it doesn't help him, them being there, he gets rid of them. And you see that time and time again. Its first opportunity is really with Lucy. And then you see it with, like, the fact that he just constantly tosses people away. Sejanus is a huge example of that. Sejanus, he was so envious of this man. Like, specifically in the book, but also this is, like, clear in the movie, that everybody saw him as a district guy who then paid a bunch of money. His family has a bunch of money now from the rebel, like the rebellion or whatever. They got a bunch of money. And because of their money, they are now in the capital, but they're really district. They're not real capital people. And they're looked down upon this entire family. And then because of that, Sejanus's dad like buys them into everything. Like he bought Sejanus's place in the academy. He bought this for Sejanus. He bought this. He bought this. He buys people to get what he wants, which is that's a whole nother issue. Like his father sucks. But it's the fact that like. What? I said everyone but Corio. Literally like literally though. They're besties. Um, So Corio was so, so jealous of Sejanus because he had everything that he was supposed to have. He had the father to look up to. He had the loving mother because Snow misses his mom a lot. He has the social standing. He has the money. That was a big thing for Snow. He didn't have any money. And like 
he lived poverty. Like, he couldn't afford to eat. Why, though? That's another thing that's grazed over in the movie. The only reason that they're poor is because his father, when he died, he left the family penniless, basically. But how? If he was making money off of the war, dies in war, how did he lose the money? I can't remember how exactly it happens, but I think it's a fact of they weren't rich before the war. And then everybody lost a bunch of money. Because remember, he was a a munitions tycoon, right? So it probably means he was selling stuff for the war. And then he stopped to go into the military. And then he was rising in the ranks and all of that. And then I feel like as soon as he died, like the family was just left without any money because they had nobody supporting them. Because obviously, like, Tigress was a child. Grandmam was crazy and not going to work because, you know, I don't think women worked as much in this setting. And then Corio was literally a baby. So they're left penniless. So, like, Snow is so jealous of Sejanus. He literally wants to be him, which I think is interesting because he gets exactly what he wants. This is another thing that they did not talk about in the movie as much. But you remember at the end where Professor Gall is talking to, or Dr. Gall, I think she goes by both. She's talking to Coriolanus uh, after he, like, has his freak out in the woods with Lucy and then goes back to the Capitol. And she says... A certain Mr. Plinth has generously offered to fund your academy expenses. Do you remember that? Yeah. And she was like, oh, I won't tell them that you literally instigated their son's death. I'll let you still be friends. Which, A, girl, why? Um, And what's not really fleshed out is the fact that Snow becomes the Plinth's son, basically. He 100% replaces Sejanus. He was friends with Sejanus because it helped him in the games and it helped him try to win this plinth prize that they were all going after because being friends with him was seen as being good and it made him look sympathetic and it made him look like a nice person like in the books it's mentioned people are like oh well you're friends with Sejanus that's that's very nice of you to overlook his family's like past or whatever so it's almost like a game for him he's like oh Sejanus makes me look good I hate the guy Mm -hmm. but as long as I'm friends with him like on a surface level it's fine because he makes me look good. Then, in my opinion, Sejanus got what was coming to him. Like, he didn't do anything wrong in that. I'm not mean that in the way, like, ah, oh, he was terrible and he deserved it. Uh, what I mean is that the man was stupid. The man did not know how to lead a rebellion. Like, there's people who know how to lead a rebellion. And there's people who just rebel. And he just rebelled. He did not rebel in a way that makes any sense or would have preserved his life. And even Corio told him that in the movie and in the book. Do you remember the scene where he was like in the arena? I just want my voice to be heard. Like they have to know the pain that they're causing. And Coriolanus was even like, yeah, but you got to do it in a way that it'll actually matter because they literally just cut the feed and nobody's going to hear you. You're just going to die for no reason. And he's like, you have to do something that'll actually make a difference. You have to help in a way that'll actually make a difference. And that was the one thing that he said that I actually thought was a good thing. Mm -hmm. That was the one thing I felt like, okay, this guy might actually be a good guy. And then he proved me wrong by killing somebody. Um, And then being like, I felt powerful. And it's like, uh, bruh, nah. That was like a crazy moment with Tigress and him and really led to the downfall of their relationship, in my opinion, because I think that's the moment Tigress really started to realize how much... He idolized his father and how much he was going to become his father and maybe even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it kicked in whenever he was forced to be the, um, what is it called? Peacekeeper? 
peace like in district 12 yeah whenever he was sent to be a peacekeeper and had all this i don't know reform i guess interesting and all so you think that his like evil and manipulative ways came out later no i think him following in his dad's ways probably picked up a lot whenever he was in it's not technically a military i mean it's a it's a form of military yeah, it's um whatever that they is. wear uniforms they they're arranged guns. in like groups called weird names and they shoot people with their guns so sounds like a military to me pretty much it's sanctioned by the government <laughs> Yep. Anyhow, um, I wonder how much of his chaos or chaotic craziness came from going back to that or going to that life where his father died in, kind of. Yeah, I feel like it goes along with the whole theory of could Snow have ever been a good person or was it like destined from the start because of the way that he saw his father live out his life? Because he saw his father do all of the manipulative things and use people to rise in the ranks and being kind of narcissistic. He saw all of that in his father. And people are like, kind of theorizing. They're like, it's the age-old question. Are people evil from the start or is evil made? Well, here's the thing. Let's say he was born evil, okay? As a kid, he sees all of these bad things and he gets to the academy, I guess because of his dad and what he did for the, the capital, maybe. Um, High Bottom, who knows about his dad and what he's done, because we figured that out at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. does nothing to like guide him away while he's still young and impressionable. See, this is a very interesting thought. And that's one of the things I was going to talk to you about is the whole Dean Highbottom thing. Mm-hmm. Because in the books and the movie, I th- I love that they kept this very similar. Snow is introduced because you're looking from Snow's perspective. And it's even like that in the movie. You're first interest- introduced to Highbottom. As in, he's the evil teacher at the academy who hates Coriolanus Snow for no reason other than he just hates him. And... He's always mean to him and he tries to take everything away from Snow. In the book specifically, it's very clear that that's truly what Snow thinks. He like is convinced this man hates him and like is trying to stop him from achieving anything good in life. And he doesn't know why. And then he kind of figures out that his father knew Dean Highbottom. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, oh, it must be because my father and him didn't get along. And you don't find out in the book what actually happened until the very last second just like you did in the movie Mm -hmm. where it was like dean highbottom's whole thing the whole time was trying to stop snow from ever becoming into a position of power where his evil and manipulative ways could lead in hurting more people that was his ulterior motive the entire time was stopping snow from hurting other people You saw it when he gave Lucy the money and sent her back to District 12 and told her he was glad that she escaped Snow. And that's the first time in the book, sorry, in the movie, where like we really start questioning Dean Highbottom's motives because previously to that scene, you literally just, you think he's the evil professor. You think he's up to no good and he like doses himself with morphling and he's high all the time and doesn't even know what he's doing half the time. And like, I remember reading the book and I was thinking like, what the hell is wrong with this man? Like, what happened to him? Like, why is he like this? Why does he hate snow? Why is he constantly like dosing himself with like medicine? Well, drugs. Clearly, this is a man who has trauma. We don't know what it's from. And at the end, we find out that it's because... 
he got drunk one night, had the crazy idea for the Hunger Games, and like they had a school project or something. And Corio's dad was the one who was doing the project with him. And, you know, he told Highbottom, this is a great idea. We should pitch this. And Highbottom was like, fuck no. I was like literally joking, man. Like that's batshit crazy. Why on earth would we ever propose this as an actual idea? And then Snow's dad took the idea and gave it to the teacher or whatever. And thus the Hunger Games were born. Interestingly, though, something I thought was weird. Snow's dad did not take credit for the idea. Did you notice that? Yeah, he said it was both of them. Yeah, so if I were Snow's dad, I, after hearing my friends come up with this idea that I thought was great, and then my friend being like, I would never pitch this, this is horrible, I would not take it to the teacher and say, we both came up with this idea. If I was a self-serving person, like Corio's dad was, clearly, I would have taken it and I would have given it to the... uh. I would have given it to the teacher and been like, this is my idea and taken all the glory for it. So it's interesting to me that he didn't do that. And I'm not entirely sure why, because it doesn't really make sense. I guess like the only thing I can think of is that they were close enough friends that he either was like, oh, even though it wasn't my idea, I'm going to take part of the credit for it. Or the other idea that I like even more because it's even more diabolical (laughs) is that He wanted credit for this idea because he thought it was good and he thought it would get him great places, which it did um, until he died, of course. Um, But he also knew it would kill Highbottom knowing this was his idea that's now going to plague the world forever. And for some reason, he hated Highbottom. I don't think so. I feel like that would be so good. But also, it's so similar to what Snow did. So similar to his exact, like, ways and his actions. So if I'm remembering right, Highbottom didn't have a problem with him, really. Like, nothing big until that moment, whenever he put that idea out to the Capitol. He didn't have a problem with Snow's dad? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. I think that they were best friends. So... In the book, it specifically said that they were best friends. And like we find out in the book, you find out from a barkeeper who's like, oh, yeah, they came in every night. They were best friends. They were always drinking. And then one night they were here and they got to an argument about something. And then I never saw them here again. So like it's supposed to, like at least from the book's perspective, you're supposed to think that they were besties until that night when he did that. And then they, he was like, I will never be your friend again. Yeah. I wonder if maybe they were working on stuff right they were working on this idea high bottom warns his dad mm-hmm. snow's dad and he says something along the lines of like we can't do this this isn't right blah 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 right he says something like that to say this isn't a good idea mm-hmm. and he puts his name on it anyway Highbottom's name on it whenever he turns it in just as a way to cover like if if I'm going down you're going down with me Mm. to protect himself honestly I wonder if it was a Clemencia situation because this is the other thing I want to talk about because the parallels we see between Corio and his father throughout this entire story is like insane to me because Snow is faced with almost an identical problem so in the movie And I kind of hated this. This is the one thing I genuinely did not like about how they add up, like they adapted the movie, Um, is the fact that they completely ruined Clemencia's character. In the book, and if you don't remember who Clemencia is, 
She's the classmate, or for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know who the hell any of these people are. The one that gets stabbed in the neck? Well, no, not that one. The other oh. one. That's Arachne. Fucking terrible person. He Hate her. Jesus. She deserved it. Who taunts a hungry child who's going to die anyway? Who taunts that person? And like in the movie, there were, it was a bottle that she smashed, right? Mm-hmm. In the book, it's even stupider. The girl brought a butter knife. And gave it to the fucking Hunger Games girl to cut this, like, sandwich with. And she, like, cuts the sandwich and leaves the knife, like, right next to, like, the fence. And this girl is so stupid and so full of herself that she doesn't for a second to think that this starving child who literally knows they're going to die anyway and who is pissed as hell at the Capitol. And like, she's so full of herself that she doesn't think that that person would try to hurt her. And so then she's like shocked when after taunting this child with food, she just gets the, the like tribute just gets angry and then stabs her. That whole scene, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was also listening to this at work. And so I'm just like typing away an email. And then it's like, and then he looks over and sees the tribute stab her in the throat. And I was like, what? My coworker's like, what? Mm-hmm. I'm like, nothing, nothing. This happens more times than I would like to admit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Like literally all the time, every day. I swear. Half the time I'm just like, oh, I just got the craziest email. <laughs> no, I'm listening to freaking fairies and shit like murdering each other but no like the other tribute not the other tribute what am i saying the other classmate the one who got in trouble for the assignment remember she took credit for the assignment oh and then like dr gall like punishes her with the snakes her she was like the the student partner to the uh yes yeah 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 okay in the movie, she's portrayed as a conniving bitch. She is portrayed as somebody who rides along on the coattails of the smart kid in high school. Like, she's kind of smart, but not really. But she's also really lazy, so she would rather the smart kid just do her work for her. So, in the movie, when Snow proposes the idea of this, like, we should let the people, like, place bets on the tributes and it would help with viewership. Because that's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Is, like, the whole story is that nobody is watching The Hunger Games because it's fucking horrifying. And who wants to watch that? And they're trying to come up with ways to make it more viewed. And then they do the whole thing with like assigning capital kids as their mentors to see if that works. So they tried a bunch of stuff with this 10th Hunger Games, which was very risky in my opinion. But, you know, Mm -hmm. what do I know? She basically like goes, oh, well, me and Snow do all of our stuff together, all of our assignments together. So perhaps we can work together on this one. Literally just trying to get credit for this idea that Snow came up with. Like, not even, like, it's so blatant in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then she doesn't do the assignment or help with the assignment. And then Snow just puts her name on the assignment because he's a pushover. And yeah, so that's like in the movie, that's how it happens, right? Mm-hmm. And then she gets punished by Gaul. And Gaul almost comes across as kind of like an avenging angel in that scenario. What? Well, avenging angel for Snow. As in like he's been letting this girl run his life and take all the credit for all of his ideas. And he was about to do it again. And then the girl finally got what was coming to her. That's kind of how it comes across in the movie. Like if from my point of view. I don't think so. How does it come across to you? I think she understood what the situation was Mm -hmm. and 
thinned the herd. What do you mean thinned the herd for who? For the academy. No need in training somebody or having somebody as a student that's not going to have any potential. Yeah. But either way, Especially she's if doing it lying. for the good of for the good of mankind, right? Who? Gaul is getting rid of the girl. She's Clemencia, killing somebody for, for the good of the capital, the districts? For the good of the academy and the way you're seeing it. And for me, I saw it as for the good of Snow. I don't and think his so. Career. I don't think so. I think that was for her. For Gaul? Yeah. I think she she did it to, as a power play for one to show snow what she's capable of okay i'm glad you see it that way because that's how it's supposed to come across almost mm-hmm. and i felt like it just didn't come across like that for me when i watched the movie because in the books what happens is arachne amencia and snow were all assigned this assignment mm-hmm. like snow came up with one of like a little bit of the idea and then Arachne and Cre- like and Clemencia gave like some kind of like two cents on the thing. And Gaul goes, all right, the three of you write me up something and then have it on my desk tomorrow morning. That's your assignment for the day. And then after they left class that day was when they went to the zoo to go feed the tributes. And that's when Arachne, because she's fucking stupid, got stabbed by her tribute and then her tribute got killed. And Clemencia... And like Snow were both there at the zoo when it happened. And Clemencia was so stricken by the fact that her friend and classmate got brutally murdered by this tribute. And it was like so unbelievable because like the mindset of the capital children was so crazy. The fact that they were like a tribute, someone from the district killed one of us, but they're just peasants. They can't do that. That whole like narrative. Yeah. And she was, so she was stricken. She was horrified. I mean, like, a same girl, because, like, Jesus, can't imagine seeing your friend stabbed in the throat right next to you over a fucking sandwich, too. Like, Jesus Christ. She was so stricken that she was unable. She was, like, sobbing, and she, like, ran home and, like, just cried her eyes out for the rest of the night. Corio, however, is a psychopath. And he was like, damn, she just got a knife in her throat. Like, damn, that sucks. And then he was like thinking about it all night and he kind of was like, I don't know, it was such a weird, it was such a weird like inner monologue of like almost like admiration of what happened and like, whoa, like that's kind of cool and like intriguing. So he's like up all night and thinking about it and he decides to write the assignment. But then he's like, well, shit, if I just turn this in, like, like Clemencia is going to get in trouble. And so he's like, I'll put her name on it. And the next morning, when Dr. Gall calls Clemencia and Snow to her office or whatever, Clemencia is like, oh my God, she's not going to like actually get mad at us for not doing the assignment, right? And he's like, oh no, I did it. I just put your name on it. And she was like, oh, okay, well, um, can you brief me on like what you wrote up so like I know what to say? Mm-hmm. And then when they get to the office, she talks to both of them about the assignment. And Gall knows that Clemencia did not help on it. She knows that it came from Snow, but they're both trying to play it off that she helped. Because Snow honestly feels bad for her that she was so grief-stricken that she couldn't do the assignment, which mm-hmm. is one moment where I felt like Snow actually, like, his, like, kindness came out. But then also maybe the fact that... Maybe from his that, mother. Maybe what? Maybe from his mother. The small kernel of kindness from his mom that's now dead. So sad. Or Tigress. That's true also. Like, it could have been Tigress's, like, influence that led mm-hmm. to that. But Gaul then decides not to just ask her hey did you actually do this assignment she's like no no we're gonna punish this girl because she deserves it for lying to me and does the whole thing with the snakes 
Like, did the whole, it would like, it was the same in the movie. Like, she put the paper in the snake bin and then made her get it out. Um, and like, Corio is shocked and appalled and like so scared. And he's like, oh my God, why would you do that to her? Like, how could you? And she would just like states off this really like meh, like dismissive, like, eh. She's just a person. She's like almost treats this girl as an experiment. Mm -hmm. You know, that whole line where she's like, that's the joy with science is getting to find out if she'll live. Right. Right. And then she's like, it's time for my milk and crackers. That line was straight from the book. And in the book, it came across as like, holy shit, Dr. Gall is insane and like does not care about people, does not see them as like things that are life. Like she does not understand that people are life and that they are people who have dreams and hopes. She just sees them as experiments. And she will throw them away if she needs to. That is kind of her job. Yeah. And that's her job because that's her personality and her mindset. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, it came across really then in that moment that Dr. Gall is like well and truly like evil. And the reason she goes after Snow is because she sees that evilness in him. But let's talk about some of my favorite lines from the movie. One of my favorite lines is at the very first, when we first meet Lucy Gray, when she's going through the crowd and you see the mayor's daughter say, sing your way out of this one, Lucy Gray. And then obviously glorious moment of Lucy just shoving a snake down her back and then literally, oh my God, I love the fact that this isn't talked about in the movie, but in the books, the girl literally pisses herself. Like she's so scared that she like actually like soils herself and then throws up over this snake gross (laughs) literally disgusting and horrifying but also it was humiliating as hell which kind of made more sense as to why the mayor slapped lucy in the face Mm -hmm. because like in the movie it's like he probably didn't even see that lucy was the one who put the snake down her back do you think that he actually saw her do that Uh, I bet Lucy Gray was probably grinning. Probably. I mean, in the movie, she doesn't look like she's grinning. We may not have seen it whenever she's walking up the stairs or something. Maybe so. That was the thing is like, I was like, whoa, uncalled for, bro. Because in the movie, she does it way off in the crowd. The cameras are not on the girl when it happens. And so it's like when she walks up to the podium and he slaps her across the face I was like, whoa, did he actually see that? Or is she just assuming it was her and was like, this bitch is about to get bitch slapped? I think there was prior history. I mean, there was. The prior history was that the mayor's daughter told her dad that this girl was trying to go after her boyfriend, Mm. which was Lucy's boyfriend before she (laughs) was the mayor's daughter's girlfriend. Boyfriend, what am I saying? Yeah. And that's why her name was called. Her name was not picked out of a bucket. Her name was called by the mayor because he wanted to get rid of her. Oof. Yeah. Did you not pick that up? No. Oh, shit. I just assumed it went like every other time. I heard somebody say... An interesting theory of the fact that, you know, how like in the later movies, it's a very public reaping Mm -hmm. as in like a name is pulled out of a jar on a piece of paper and read in front of everyone in the in this 10th Hunger Games. That's not how it's done at all. Like, I don't think everybody was there, a but it was there was no bowl. There was nobody picking a name. It was the mayor of the district that was just saying the name into a mic. He could literally say whatever name he wanted to. And a lot of people, like, I've seen a lot of people theorize the fact that, like, Snow implemented that. Because even though he hated Lucy Gray, he also thought it was not fair that her name was called. 
And that's an interesting thought in my mind because that kind of doesn't go along with Snow's character, but also... It goes with him being a game maker. Like spinning a game kind of thing. Like, oh, it's a game of draw. Like it's a luck of the draw. Right. Yeah, I see what you mean. My favorite quote from Lucy Gray is whenever she's talking to Lucky Flickerman, whatever his name oh, was, yeah. she says, only my mama's bones, only her pearly white bones. Oh, that's such a good line. And that's such a performer's line. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's the thing. I love the, how people are like, Katniss was a hunter who was learning how to perform. And mm. Lucy was a performer learning how to hunt. Yeah. Well, uh, did she really hunt? No, she did not hunt. In the book... She mm-hmm. hunted a little bit more than she did in the movie hmm. because the movie sped everything up. That is one thing I will warn anybody who read the book and hasn't watched the movie yet. Everything is like 3000 times speed because like the tributes were in the zoo for like a, quite a long while because interestingly, the capital, like the difference between the games in this 10th Hunger Games and the later ones is there's so many differences. I could go on for hours and hours and hours about all the differences. But mm-hmm. like the fact that like the tributes were not shown the smallest kindness back then. But then in the future, when the games are literally games, there it's like it's a it's a fucking performance. And they were like everybody watches and people bet and play and like send money and send gifts. And it's a horse and pony show. Like they're literally on horses at one point parading around in front of everybody um once that happens is like there's a shift in how the tributes are treated Mm -hmm. because whereas it was like we're punishing the tributes because they're bad and this is their reminder for the rebellion that they caused and now it's like a game as in like they want people to be interested but they also want to come off looking good because the thing is the capital looks terrible the capital Nobody likes them. Nobody likes them. In like the fir- in this movie and the book, nobody likes the Capitol because they literally torture children and murder them for no reason. And that's still true. They still continue to do that. But Snow and Gall almost find a way to glamour spell the thing. And they're like, oh, but, but don't you want to be a tribute? Because then you leave the terrible districts and you come to the beautiful Capitol where you get to enjoy all of these amazing luxuries of life for this time that you're here and we prepare you and all this stuff like we're gonna like talk about the fact that they start training these people like in this scene like in the book they dump them into a zoo they starve them to death until they're literally on the brink of death and then they drop them in the arena and they're like all right kill each other and then they're hoping it'll be done fast They're hoping that it'll end in like a day Mm -hmm. because that is their mindset to start off with. But like Snow and his crazy way of like figuring out how to make something terrible look good, which is like his entire personality. He finds a way to make this thing look like a game as in like a party, as in something that you want to be invited to. Like literally, how is that possible? Because there are people training, training like they were careers, Like the careers who like spent their whole life training just in case they get reaped. And those are like the ones that usually won, right? From like four and like three and all that. Yeah. The higher up districts. They started training to get an opportunity to do this. And that was 100% something of Snow's making. Like making this look like it was the best thing in the world. And then that's how they got people to start watching it and like voting on it. But then they also like trained 
like in the Katniss ones, you see that they go through this like weeks of training. Like they go, they get reaped. You go to the Capitol, you get a mentor that tells you how you can win and like is there for all your advice. And then you go and you live in luxury, in a luxurious house with amazing beds and like all the food you could want and like the bathrooms are magical. And then you get trained how to survive in the games by the capital. And they're like finding ways to prolong it. And it's all about making it more of a game. Mm-hmm. It's a more about like it's ma- about making it more of a spectacle. And I will say it's kind of ingenious. It really is. Like if you're a psychopath and you enjoy watching people die, it's kind of ingenious. But it's the fact that they got everybody to watch that I just will like never understand how they did that. But well, it's you said it. Yeah. You know the reason people are watching now is because they have somebody they can root for, somebody they care yeah, about. Yeah, it's like literally what Stow says. He's like. You want if you want them to like watch, you have to give them something to root for. Yeah, nobody wants to watch a game with a bunch of shriveled, dying children killing each other. Right, Which that's makes, not fun. Why is it even called Hunger Games? It's because they originally starved them. I'm pretty sure. Right. So if they don't do that anymore, I don't think that they could rebrand the Hunger Games. They should. They should go through a whole marketing team oh now. My gosh. Yeah. Oh, the new logo. S- the Snow Games. The Snow Games. Literally, though, I'm surprised you didn't make that happen. Yeah. I want to move into a specific portion I would like to call Conspire With Me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to talk about all the crazy conspiracy theories that I've seen out there. And I will tell you, there are a lot of them. Because I love the videos where it's like, oh my God, crazy theory. But what if Tigris is his cousin? And I'm like, girl, did you read the book? Please tell me this is a joke. <laughs> did you and I watch the same movie? Because I'm concerned. And there are so many of those. But one of the interesting theories that I personally cannot stop thinking about is the bomb attack that happens directly before the games start. Yeah, by the rebels. Yes. Was it actually by the rebels? Or did... Or did Dr. Gall and the Capitol make that happen? Like orchestrate a orchestrate fake terrorism like, attack? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. All right, I'm going to give you four reasons why it is. Okay. All right. A, Dr. Gall and the Capitol do not care about life. So a lot of people are like, why would they do that when the mentors were in there? They don't care. Mm -hmm. We see it again and again. They clearly do not care about these Capitol children. They don't care about anybody. So that's not a concern for them. B, in the book specifically, the backstory of what else is happening is crucial to this point and is completely left out. So after Arachne, the mentor, gets killed by her tribute, what happens? horrifyingly spoiler well trigger a warning for anyone who hates death this is gonna be gruesome so arachne's like tribute was killed by the capital directly after she killed arachne but mm-hmm. what they did because they were the capital is so obsessed with punishing the districts and like keeping the districts as suppressed and small as they can be Mm-hmm. they put all the tributes in a wagon and for Arachne's funeral, you know, there's a funeral procession, right? You've got all the cars and stuff with the body in it, right? Yeah. So they had all that and they had the weeping family and everything. And the thing was televised. And what they did as a way of getting back at the rebels was they speared the body of this tribute who killed her on a giant fish hook on the back of a truck bed and they piled all of the alive tributes into the car up 
So they were sitting underneath this body and they paraded the dead body with all these tributes through the parade of people in the funeral procession as a way of saying these rebels are disgusting and we are punishing them for this. And just because that they took one of our people doesn't mean that we won't continue to punish them. And it was a message to the rebels. Mm -hmm. So this is my reason for why I think Dr. Gall planned the attack is right after this happens, <coughs> right after the whole tribute, funeral procession, all that terribleness, right after that is when the bombs go off, like directly after it. Like they all go to the, tri- like the tributes and the mentors go to the arena to scope out the place and the bombs go off. And then during the bombs, a bunch more mentors die and their tributes, of course. And it's almost perfect timing. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, it's almost too perfect to believe it happened by accident. Because in that moment, it provided Dr. Gall in the Capitol with the perfect ability to get back even more at the rebels for what they did. They saw the tribute killing the like mentor as like a rebel, a rebellion thing, which it really wasn't. It was just a starving child being provoked by a bitchy child. Mm-hmm. And that just ended up that way but they saw it as a way for like the capital to get back at the districts and so i feel like it's just too perfect the timing because then they were like right after it they were like the rebels set these bombs and they killed our children so this is why we should be even more mad at them and why you should watch the hunger games so that like the districts get their punishment it seems too perfect you know i don't agree i feel like it makes sense no why if you want to punish the people in the district, yeah, why make it so easy? Why make what so easy? Because what happened after the bombs? The building blows. Everyone's in distress and confused. Some of them try to run in the chaos. And immediately, they're shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Where's the punishment? So the punishment is for the districts, not for the tributes. Right. The no, tributes that's, are that's always going to die. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the district want to see their people live. They want to see... Not really. That's what they're there for. That's what they're told by Snow when he organizes the whole thing. You know, so what happens is back then, the districts did not watch the games. They did. This is the time that this is right before, before the bombs blow, right? Uh Is right whenever they do the, the like talent show thing, right? The talent show? Yeah. You don't remember Lucy Gray saying? Oh. on tv okay that's a yeah it was on tv but back then it's even stated in there in the movie and the book that the districts are not watching the hunger games it's mainly the capital that's watching the hunger games well uh... and they're trying to boost ratings right they're trying to boost the views so it would make sense that you're having the people from the capital who are watching it right Mm -hmm. and you're like get revenge on the you can watch you know, our revenge on the districts by watching the games. But it also serves as a reminder to the districts that you guys are nothing. You can blow up Um, our capital. We're just going to kill your children. I don't know. I don't know. Because like if if I were in the district and I had no money, I would watch to see if my tribute 
from my district did get support, even if it didn't come from me, if it came from the Capitol. Yeah, but um, the districts were not watching the games. But I would. I would I have know a reason would. to now. Because and that's I would the have whole faith. point is they're trying to get the districts to win. Sorry, not win. What am I saying? They're trying to get the districts to watch the tr- like the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. That's Corio's whole thing that he was talking to in class. Viewership is down. That's like Dean Highbottom. Viewership is down and the Hunger Games are dying. Blah, blah, blah. And then Dr. Gall is like, what do you guys suggest? How do we fix this? And they heard their ideas. And that's why they implemented Snow's idea about the whole like bets and stuff. Because they were trying to get even the districts to start watching it. But obviously the capital is the one with the money. So they're still like trying to get the capital to watch. Because even people from the capital were stopped. Like were stopping watching the show. Because they didn't find it enjoyable anymore. And even Tigress said it like to her grandma and to Corio. Like none of these people, like half these kids were not even live when the rebellion started. So how are, like, how are we punishing the districts for the rebellion by killing the children that weren't even there to see the rebellion? And that serves into the whole, like, you know, Snow's thing of, like, the uh, they're a reminder, not a punishment necessarily. I guess. Yeah. What is your next conspiracy? I love this theory, and I wish it was true. It's not, because we have, like, actual proof it's not true. But, um... There was a theory I saw that President Snow's sickness that you see in the later movies, like he always has like coughing up blood and all that shit. Disgusting. People are like, what if the sickness comes from the snake bite? And I'm like, that would be dope as hell. Like literally like like, Slay Lucy, like literally like you're haunting this man in so many ways and I'm loving it. Um, Unfortunately, we do know what the sickness is from and sadly it's not from a snake bite, but it is diabolical. And really plays into this um, explanation of Snow's like absolute craziness and like his literally psychopathic tendencies is the fact that, as we said, like earlier, like Snow uses people and when they serve their purpose, he gets rid of them. We saw it with Sejanus. We saw it with Lucy Gray. We saw it even with the kid in the fucking arena. Like, you know, the only reason he killed that kid was because he was threatening Snow's (laughs) self-preservation. Like, Snow had no reason to kill that child. Well, I mean, he was kind of coming after him. But, like, the fact of, like, he was only in the arena because he was hoping to get some money out of Plinth's family. Mm -hmm. And... And then by killing the tribute, he also made himself look better to the capital. So, like, that was a very self-serving thing. But so he uses this, like, self-servingness. Like, whenever he just, like, needs to get rid of somebody, he's like, ah, just off him. But his preferred method was poisoning because why would you not? Um, Maybe it goes back to his, like, whole snake thing. So I don't know. His snake tendencies and, like, Professor Gall and her fucking poisonous snakes and shit. Um, But to lull his, like, enemies into, like, complacency and, like, not being scared of it, he would poison his own glass because he's fucking insane. Like, why would you just not, like, have somebody shoot them? I legitimately do not know. But he would poison his own glass and then he would just rely on taking an antidote super quickly after. And obviously, with how many people apparently Snow has killed over the years... That had an effect to where, like, he got a lot of swords in his mouth. And he literally, like, he's drinking poison. Like, that's not good for you, bro. And so that's why he's sick. But isn't that just batshit crazy? Like, he goes so far. He goes to such lengths to murder his enemies in a way that makes them feel like they're his friends still. Like, going as far as to, like, poisoning your own glass just so that they don't see you stabbing them in the back before they're stabbed. Mm -hmm. Like, it screams his whole thing with Sejanus. Like, he was so 
oh, bestie Sejanus. Oh, Sejanus, I love you. We're best friends. Actually, I'm selling you out to the Capitol and you're going to be dead by tomorrow morning, but you'll never know that until it's too late. Like, you know, that like, kind of narrative like really continues in his life. Speaking of poison, poison, I noticed this whenever in the movie. What? Basically, whenever Snow first meets Lucy Gray, yeah, uh, she steps out and he hands her a flower, right? Sure. And she picks one of the petals off and eats it. Yeah. And that's very unconventional, obviously. Yeah. People don't eat flowers. But um, rose petals are poisonous a little bit if you eat enough of them. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. It's either poisonous or just cause allergic reaction, something like that. I think huh. it's it's very mild. Like, you wouldn't die from it, but... See, um, it's little details like this that make me love this story. Like, yeah. there's so much thought process that goes into every little thing. I wonder if that's what initially started his attraction to her. It's, like, so foreshadowy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. I also like that at the end, like, you even see him start his poisoning journey, as it were, at the very end of the movie in the book, when he poisons Dean Highbottom. But even in that instance... He played it out in a way where Dean Highbottom really almost had, for. I feel like he didn't forgive Corio in any way. He fully realized this man was going to be evil and was going to be terrible, but he almost was like accepting of the fact. I don't know if that came across to you. I need to rewatch the last scene again, but I feel like it's crazy because Corio did it in such a way that... He like lulled Dean Highbaum into a, a false sense of safety where he was like, yeah, I know you hate me, but like, I understand why you hate me. My dad was a prick. And then like, here's some morphling, you know, because I'm going to be nice to you. But really, he'd poisoned the morphling. And it's like, you really just saw the, the beginning of it all in that moment and then the moment where he like crosses the road and then like looks off into the distance at the fountain for absolutely no reason like he literally like why was that scene so like specific for no reason like why did he cross the road we don't know there was nothing across the road and then he just stares out into nothingness it's a very strange scene but it ends and I also love his wardrobe in that scene because it really shows a different descent. And this is another theory somebody caught where it was like his wardrobe. Like we start off with him in the Academy red, right? Which is like a really bright red color. Mm-hmm. And then you compare it to like the kind of color he wears at the very end of the actual like first Hunger Games part of the series. Like right when he's like dying and like Katniss is about to kill him and all that shit. The more blood he has on his hands, the darker and darker his wardrobe gets. Because, like, you see the shades of red just get darker and darker throughout the series, throughout his lifetime. Until it's, like, almost black towards the end of the series. And I just love that portrayal. It's those subtle things that the creators of movies just put effort into. And, like, I just, I really appreciate it. A lot of people don't appreciate that. I personally appreciate the hard work that goes into like thinking about a character's wardrobe and portraying the character's journey through their clothing. Like nothing is done on a whim. And I love that. And in that scene, we see his first time really wearing another like color that's red, you know? 
And it's interesting because the Peacekeeper gray colors almost lulled you into a sense of like, oh, he's going to be fine. He's going to, you know, live out his days with Lucy. And even the scene where they're running away together, he's wearing a very pale colored outfit and he's wearing a white shirt and that almost portrays the innocence. And then you just really realize that that's not at all the case. And then he goes straight to wearing this super dark red wardrobe that looks almost menacing. And it's so perfect for his character arc. And I love it so much. Did you catch that at all with the wardrobe? Uh, no, I don't pay attention to it. Um, this whole time that you've been talking about how you really love whenever people do that, the whole time, I'm just thinking, I bet there's people out there who've made shows and movies and the the wardrobe change just to happen to be that way just because they forgot to dry clean the one red one that was clean. (laughs) Probably. For like TV shows, I feel like that definitely has happened, but for a movie of this scale with where every little thing subtly means something, I feel like it's so specific. Um, let's talk about Lucy Gray. I feel like Stowe has kind of taken over this podcast episode. He needs to go on the back burner for a while because he does not deserve the light. He does not deserve the spotlight. Our queen Lucy Gray Baird does. You want to put snow in the in the freezer? Oh my god. <laughs> I, I did you get my like spotlight joke because you know she's a she's a musician she's in the I spotlight did not. all the time. Um, well, a Rachel Ziegler's like performance of Lucy Gray Baird really good, freaking so good. Jesus Christ, like such a excellent casting for the role, and I just absolutely love the fact that like the actress is has been dating the actor for who plays Sejanus for like years and years, like they're like best friends. And they're, like, also together. And then they're just, like, playing on polar opposites. I have to say, I don't know. Girly, girly is lucky because I don't know about y'all, but if my boyfriend was in a movie with me and I had to be loving up on Tom Blythe, good God, I feel like I would be so constantly worried about him being jealous that I couldn't act correctly. Well. Like, I get it. It's their job and all. Right. But come on, it's Tom Blythe. He's Sir Janus, whatever his name is. I don't know any of the actual actor names. Oh my God, Tom Blythe is uh, the guy who plays Snow. So Janus, uh, Josh Hutcherson, I want to say. That's definitely not correct. How dare you? I can't remember his name. I remember two names. That was enough for me. Um, no, I just, I couldn't, like, my self-confidence could not take it. Um, so I love their characters together. Uh, the three of them, honestly, are just, like, best friends in li- like in real life. And it's so funny to me. Um, she just did such a great job. Like, Rachel did such a great job. Obviously, her voice is, like, absolutely breathtaking. Like, her performances, like, literally could stop me in my tracks. I could be walking past... I don't even know where. And a song of hers would come on and I would come on and I would just like stop in the middle of wherever I was and just listen for the two and a half minutes she's singing. I don't I don't much care for the singing. Really? I'm not like against it or anything. It's just wasn't like significantly Canceled. impressive. But not well, I say that. I don't think really anyone is significantly impressive for singing. Except for Taylor Swift, obviously. Anyway. Um <laughs> Ever since you said that one time about how we've mentioned her every podcast episode, I now feel the need to mention her every time just to keep it up. Yeah. I don't know if she was mentioned in the Australia episode or not. I feel like she was. Maybe. I don't know. 
feel like she was. Anyway, what was it talking about? Lucy Gray and how you don't really care about her voice. Oh. And you think she's a terrible actress. I really think that <laughs> she's um like I think she played. I think she made the character. Not that she played it. She made that character. I um, love that idea. I don't think many people could have played it or played Lucy Gray as well as she did. Yeah. I definitely agree. Yeah. Can't take my charm. And then it helps that she sings too. Can't take my humor. Yeah. Anyway, such a good song. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I love Lucy. Her entire character is just really, really good, honestly. And such an interesting person because she's so exactly the opposite of Snow. Whereas Snow is everything hatred and social standing. And literally, like, only cares about himself. She is the polar opposite. She wants a quiet life. She wants peace. She just wants music. She just wants to be able to, like, make people happy with her voice. She, like, the whole conversation they have about where he's like, people are terrible. Like, they're in the woods running away. And she's like, I, like, won't miss people at all. They're all horrible. And she's like, I don't think people are always horrible unless you give them a reason to be. And, like, that just, like, really just, like, sings out the differences in their characters. And then I particularly love the line where they're sitting in, like, after they go swimming together in District 12. And they're sitting on, like, the bank together. Mm -hmm. I love that scene so much because there is so much in that scene. There's so much foreshadowing. The fact that she sings that song about a girl named Lucy Gray who like flies away or whatever. And like she's a mystery. And he asks her specifically like whatever happens to Lucy Gray? Does she, you know, did she die? Like what happened to her? And she's like, you know, what? I think she flew away. Like I think she's a mystery just like me. That was such heavily foreshadowing. Like come on bro. You didn't see that coming? You didn't see her flying away? running away you didn't see that coming because i Mm -hmm. saw that coming um but then she says trust is everything to me more important even than love without trust you might as well be dead to me and she's specifically talking about her relationship with billy toe which a oh my god the jealousy this is another thing that in the book that just really did not come across in the film is the fact that snow is constantly jealous about everything and everyone like it does not matter like you could have literally the fucking worst life like billy tope like who's literally a piece of garbage and he was so jealous of that man he had the attention of lucy gray exactly but he didn't that's the funny thing that's his girl exactly his eliminate the the competition fucking snow was like that's my girl bro had not even kissed her yet and i was like excuse you calling dibs pretty early yeah like um bro you might want to like wait till she like makes it out of the arena because your girl's about to be dead But his jealousy of tel- like Billy Tope is just crazy. And that's what led to that scene in the book. He was like asking her <laughs> subtly if she missed Billy. And she was like, nah, because like I can't trust him. And then she says this very important line. And this kind of leads to the ending, honestly. It's the beginning of the end, mm-hmm. really. Because she specifically told him that. Because deep down, I think Lucy knew she couldn't trust Snow. I think that girl was not stupid. I think that she honestly used Snow as much as he used her. He used her because he wanted to seem like a good guy. But he also used her because he saw she was good at her performance. He knew he needed a performer 
to win the games and he could only get the money for the like university and to help him get back the life he really wanted of being a rich socialite by winning this prize and in order to do that he needed her and he needed her to win so he used her and her performing abilities to get what he wanted kind of backfired for him sorry bro you got it and then he got it back later by ditching her (laughs) um but that's what I get him what I'm saying is like he uses people when it's convenient for him and ditches them when it's not. It was really the beginning of the end though because in this moment she knows that she can't trust him and she goes on to say um, basically like kind of picking at him to be like I if I don't trust you this ain't gonna work bro and he even says oh trust everything for me too. Yeah bro because you're clearly our actions have like have led us to believe that that's true but I think it leads to that moment after he's in the woods and he's like oh yeah I killed three people and she's like wait what three I know of two which is already kind of a lot girly red flag red fucking flag where's the red flag guy from TikTok like like he needs to be parading I swear to god I need I need him to make a video and like a him like, you know, like on the green screen and it'd be like a picture of Corio and her in the field wa- and like the forest walking. And it's like a green screen of him with his red flag being like, ma'am, ma'am, red flag, red flag. Because literally like man's killed two people for no reason. And you're literally well, just casually taking a stroll in the forest together. One of them he had a reason is self-defense. Okay. So like first guy, self-defense. Sure, sure, sure. He did shoot the, the other dude. The mayor's daughter? The mayor's daughter. Okay. Girly, Girly was just fucking stupid and jealous. He did not need to literally shoot her dead. Like, there could have been a discussion. He could have calmed her down. Billy Tope could have been like, no, babe, no, babe, it's fine. I would never leave with, like, fucking Lucy Gray and him. Why would I? Why would you say that? That's not how it happened, right? He killed Tope. He killed Billy. And then the other dude with the shotgun killed the... No, it was the other way around. The other way around? It was the okay. other way around and forget i said so, that yeah forget Skirt. um so that's why i'm like he killed two people but then the fact that she's like who's the third and this fucking dumbass says myself when i killed them <laughs> like bro no and i think in that moment she was like also like uh yeah so i'm not fucking stupid and you're lying to me which means that as i've told you trust is everything and I'm not about to run away and make a life with somebody who literally won't even like admit to the fact that he killed three people and not two. That was the beginning for the end for her, in my personal opinion. Did he? I never 100% concluded on that. He meant his friend, right? Sir Janus. Yes. Janus? Yes. Yeah. He did. Okay. Because he's stupid. <laughs> yeah. You're not an angsty guy. And even yeah, if you were. Yeah. I was like, I laughed so hard when I read that line. I was like, you're kidding. <laughs> That's the best you could come up with? I was like, and the thing is, it was so easy. Because he was thinking about Sejanus, right? So why wouldn't he have just been like, well, I blame myself for Sejanus' death. Yeah, that's completely different. That's different. Almost believable. I still would have been like a little hesitant because he also still did kill two people in cold blood. You should have just said the truth. That's what I'm saying. Like, what was she going to do? Like, oh, no, I could handle two people being killed by you, but not three. Three times the charm. Third times the charm, guys. Three strikes, you're out. <laughs> and that's all at the old ball game. Um. Anyway, 
So I think this overall theory of like what happened to Lucy Gray, I will say I do understand why Suzanne Collins wrote it in and we don't know what happened to her. But it still pisses me off because I'm one of those people who has to know. I have to know. I wonder. What do you think happened to Lucy Gray? I really need to know what your thoughts on this are. I think this is one of those situations where... Who wrote the book? Her name's Suzanne Collins. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I would think that Suzanne is putting her in her pocket, Lucy Gray, so that she can appear as someone in Katniss's life. Well, after, but we've already had all of Katniss's story. After the war, after No, because snow. she's be too old. She, she can, would be she's like as in old her as 90s. Snow is. Snow lived that long. I know, but Snow was in the capital also. People Doesn't did not live as long in any of the other districts. Doesn't mean she couldn't do it. Okay, from my personal standpoint, I think that Suzanne Collins is done writing Katniss's story. I don't think she's going to go back to that story. I think that I the way it ended with, with her and like with Katniss and Peeta being together and having their two children and living out their happy life in peace, I think she will leave it there. I think that's what I'm getting at. I don't think it has to go back to Katniss. I think she'll be a special guest kind of thing. She'll so be then an appearance. Do you think, she's alive somewhere. I think that this would this theory you would like then. The theory that, you know, the old woman in District 12, who Katniss goes to sell like her barter her like dead animal to like Katniss and like Gail go hunting and then they go like sell like the skin or something for like some extra money or whatever or some food yeah there's an old woman there at the place and the old woman is the one who gives Katniss the Mockingjay pin the famous pin that then becomes the literal emblem for the rebellion there's a lot of people who think that that old woman was Lucy Gray. I think that would make more sense. Mm, interesting. I personally don't think that's true. I don't I... think that could be her. I think she, I think if I think if she was going to be somewhere, she'd be more prevalent. I think okay, this is what I would like to think. Let's start with that. I would like to think that she went on to like run away and ran away to outside the districts and found people out there and then lived out a happy life as a musician in peace and solitude the way that she always dreamed of it. I would love for that to be the end of her story because that is a beautiful ending and I feel like she really deserved it after all the shit she went through. I don't think that's how it ended. I think Snow killed her. I think that Snow went back out and found her and killed her. Like after, like way later. Why didn't he find her when he was shooting the gun? So when he was shooting, he was paranoid and he'd lost her and Mance was hallucinating. I feel like that snake was not doing So you're saying that after he gets back to the capital, he has some kind of adventure to go find her or, or he I sends off some I think that after he's doing his work in the university, he finishes university and it's always plagued him that he doesn't know if she's actually dead. Because this is the thing. And this is why, as somebody who's read the books, I think this. His paranoia is so bad. His paranoia is so bad that he is so scared of anybody who could possibly do anything to hurt him. Which is why he killed the mayor's daughter. Because that paranoia, like only a crazy paranoid person would be like, I must shoot her right now because she's saying that she might go tell her dad. No, that's not necessary. But a paranoid person would do that. And he has a lot of paranoid tendencies throughout the book that we see. And then he also is so paranoid in the Katniss books later on. And so I feel like personally for Snow's character, I don't think he would be able to live with himself 
in a world where Katniss, as she said, was the only person who knew what he did. She says when he's like getting rid of the guns, she's like, oh, so you could get rid of those guns. And that means that the only link to the deaths of them would be gone forever, except for me, which a girly pop. Why'd you say that? Why'd you put that name? Why'd you put that thought in his head? Because what? And like partially, I believe she did that as a test. And then the test did not work. She was like, shit, I'm out. (laughs) Bye. But the fact that he's so paranoid, I don't think he could live with the fact of his whole life with how powerful he became. Like he killed anybody who didn't like him. He like got rid of anybody who did not agree with everything he said. Like the game maker in the first movie, the Hunger Games movie and the Hunger Games book, that that guy snow killed because he was like i feel bad for doing this game i don't think the games are like i'm cut out for the games i don't want to do all the things that you're telling me to do so he killed the guy and replaced him so with that thought it doesn't match up to his character for him just to leave to chance the fact that she's out there like he wipes lucy gray from history like dr gall wipes the 10th Hunger Games from everything. There's only one copy. It's in her personal vault. It's never seeing the light of day. And he wipes all of her songs from the world. That's why when her songs are later sung by Katniss, he freaks out because he's like, fuck, I tried to like get this girl gone and she's literally still here somehow. So I personally think that after he rose to power, he sent some people out to hunt her down and kill her. I personally don't think his paranoia could have handled the fact that she could still be out there. But also, I think that maybe that could also kind of be a reason as to why he's still so paranoid. So it's one of those things where I really don't know. Kind of the last theory that I just want to drop in here because I think it's hilarious. Do you know who Coin is? And you remember who Coin is in The Hunger Games? The leader of the District 13 rebel, like, people. Coin? Coin. I don't know what her first name is. I don't know if she goes by I, gender or com- general or commander coin or something like I, that. Yeah, I know who you're talking the about. The girly, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Some people think that's Lucy Gray. No. Thank you. And on that note, <laughs> thanks for joining us, guys. If you want to hear more about these crazy batshit ideas that people come up with, let me know because I could definitely write a whole other dissertation about this. I can see why somebody would think that because Coin has it If you has think it about it for, for like two seconds, you could be like, oh yeah. And then if you think about it for like another 0.5 seconds, you'll be like, that makes no fucking sense. Right. Because A, age. B, Lucy would never ever tell somebody, let's play a Hunger Games with the Capital Kids. No, that... Her character would never do that. And also three, like it goes across her entire character that we were just talking about. She wanted a peaceful life. She's not leading a fucking rebellion. Yeah, it makes no sense. Makes no sense. But yeah, um, go rent Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. I have it on Amazon. I think you can also get it on Amazon. Hashtag not sponsored. Hashtag not sponsored. Um, <laughs> But... I love this book. I love this movie. I think that it is such a well done like series on as a whole. But I think that this book and the story specifically really gives us a perfect beginning to Snow's story. And she just Suzanne did her such a good job with both the book and like helping with the movie. I love this series. And I will never stop talking about this movie until the day I die. So prepare to hear about it for the rest of your life, honey. Please no. Huh? Please, no. Please, no. Yes. No. We're naming our kid Katniss. 
Oh. Swamp Potato. Oh, we can name our dog Swamp Potato. Oh my god. I want a dog named Katniss. That would be so fucking slay. And then we need to have another dog. No, it needs to be a cat named PETA. Because that just makes sense. You don't want the cat's name to be Katniss? Ah, uh, that would be so cool. You didn't see that? I thought you no. looked, you thought of that and was like, nah, that's too easy. It's 10 o'clock. I'm, I have no thoughts. Oh, my God. <laughs> but anyway, um, thanks for joining us on this podcast, guys. And by us, I mean me because I did like a thousand percent of the talking. But Dakota's ums and yeses made a slight appearance this week. Thank you. They made my character. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. Well. We'll catch you guys next time. Now, every time I say that, I hear the intro playing. Well, the outro in my head. I can hear it fading in. <laughs> you like that? I love it. It's the I best work on part. That. Yeah. It's, um, I played it just the right timing where it starts at the last word. It's so good. Yeah. And it fades. The fade takes a little work. Just mm -hmm. saying. There's some finesse yeah, in there. You're very good at it. Yeah. Take a round of applause for Dakota and his editing skills because I know they're going to be put to good use on this episode. Oh my gosh. Have fun, honey. Mm -hmm. I'll just be sitting pretty over here. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for listening in, guys. Thanks for joining in on another episode of your favorite podcast with your witty husband and wife duo, yep. No Context Convos. This, I'm your host, Brianna. We could have just and ended it there. that's your other host, Dakota. <laughs> we could have just ended it. It was fine the way it was. I thought it was so good. You just cut it out. Yeah, it's too late now. What? Now it's in because of comedic relief. Oh, my Lord. Cut. You just got to think of what the last word is going to be. What is the last word? I don't know how to stop it. One, two.